Welcome to The Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all of How are you, Sarah? I'm great. How are you, Ken? Good, good. I'm good. Uh, it was good to see you at the Unforgettable uh, just recently, um, back in December. Oh, so and, much fun. Yeah. Thank you for um, coming back on. Of course. Yeah, I, I thought it'd be fun to kind of do like a, a follow up because uh, honestly, selfishly, it's also for myself so that one day when I'm old, I can kind of like I have these many bits of like mini documentaries through shows like yours. So thank you for letting me come back on again. You're welcome. And I, I regret that we don't, you know, do it more often. I think we should at least stick to maybe once a year. Yeah, because that's at important. Least. Yeah. yeah, especially because I feel like, at least in my world, it moves so so quickly. fast, so yeah. quickly. Um, that for me, like a month feels like a quarter and a quarter feels like a year, if not more. So definitely have lots to talk about. Yeah, there's a lot to catch up. Uh, before we get into the more serious uh, work or business, um, you sent me a set of and the set is beautiful, yet so practical as a brand promo piece. Yeah. What inspired that and what kind of thoughts went into bringing that set to life? Yeah, yeah. Do you have that set here? Can we yeah, show the do. audience? <laughs> it's right here. Yes. Ooh, Baokua. Yes. I love. It's yeah. Awesome. So shout out to Eric's, our in-house designer, who designed that full set. Um, yeah, how did it come about? So, you know, from day one, we've always wanted to share and uplift culture in the work of like Winkoff Supply, right? That's both for culture at origin of the beans. So like Vietnamese coffee, Vietnam, the origin, the culture at origin, as well as like culture in America. And so when it comes to like Lunar New Year or Thay, like that's such a big, big piece of Vietnamese culture. And so every year we think about like, what are we going to do as a brand to celebrate and uplift culture around Thay, both for folks of our community, of Vietnamese folks, Vietnamese American folks, and also for non-Vietnamese folks to engage and connect with our community, right? And so we came up with Balkua because it was something that was such a big part of my childhood and so many of our childhoods growing up. Um, and we thought that like for folks who had who were not familiar with it, it was a, it was a really easy way to bring people together. It was, it's not a complicated game. It's super easy to play. You can play year round, honestly, like drinking games, shots, taking shots or whatever. So we thought it was like a perfect moment um, to one, like bring back a piece of nostalgia, elevate Vimi's culture, but also share Vimi's culture in a very accessible way. And to also kind of like reimagine a piece of our culture, a piece of tradition in a new, like refreshing uh, design aesthetic, which I think a lot of us as first gens get to do. Um, yeah, so a lot of thoughts that went into it, but ultimately we were super, super excited about sharing a piece of Vietnamese culture while also creating opportunity for people to come together around it. How do we get this? How does uh, the public buy this? Yeah, yeah. It's on our website. So we released it as like a Lunar New Year special. Um, just a couple of left on the site right now, but we dropped it online. Yeah, limited it's, drop. Yeah, it's awesome. It's beautiful. It's a really beautiful piece. And, you know, like you said, nostalgia, but we get to go back into our own memories of what it would look like. And they were cheap sets growing up when we were, yeah. but now it's like elevated to a, just a, it's like an art piece almost. It's an art piece. Yeah. Cause like, I feel like there's so many things 
from our culture and our childhoods growing up, including Vietnamese coffee or but more so like Cafe Du Monde, which is like the go-to Vietnamese coffee brand or the go-to brand for Vietnamese coffee in like our immigrant communities. There's so many things from our specific community experiences I feel like just haven't been iterated upon in a refreshed way. And I think a part of that is it's just taken our generation to step into these yeah. roles where we can't iterate. Like who is going to iterate on like a refreshed Bokua game? You know, it's not going to be the Monopoly guys, right? Yeah. Um, who's going to iterate on a better, like premium Vietnamese coffee option. It's not going to be Nestle. Right. Um, so I think now that we're like our generation, like we're becoming adults. I, I still don't, I'm like, am I an adult? I, I keep forgetting I'm an adult, but like our generation, like we're like growing up now and like we actually can like, do these things which i think is really fun well i'm not going to ask you what the next thing is but i do look forward to whatever that next thing will be <laughs> yeah did you get our our uh, red envelope too our lisi yes i don't okay, know yes. where it's at but yes, yes okay but like this is the second year now like last year we also like designed a, a red envelope um we do it you know every year now and so there's little ways to like share our culture but like in a refreshed way and that leads me to the next product which is you know, I feel like th this is not a commercial for, for Windsor Coffee Supply, but there's so much going on that I do want to talk about it. I drink yeah. a lot of cold brew, and yeah. when I got your cans that your team sent me, uh, yeah. it really was a moment of pride for me because, you know, we drink co cold brew, but it's could be brewed from our own or bought from another coffee company. But to hold a coffee can that has Wind Coffee Supply and it has cold brew on it, that was a trip. And yeah. it must have been a journey to get those things out. Can you tell me about how, you know, you've developed that? Yeah, it was a trip. I'll, I'll show you here for everyone so they know <laughs> there what kind of just referring to. Um, it was such a journey. It was really, 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 really hard producing um, this ready-to-drink cold brew product. Um, what was it like? I mean, it's completely different from our initial offerings of roasted coffee, right? Which is... It was difficult at the beginning, but after four years of doing it, it's like super simple to us now, right? You, you import green beans, you roast it, you put it in a bag and you're done, right? Producing like a canned beverage product that is shelf stable, um, that some of them like our coconut and our condensed milk one has, you know, um, more than one ingredient, whereas roasted coffee is just like the one bean, right? Um, there's a certain level of chemistry and science to it that we had to work with like a formulator and a food scientist to develop it, um, as well as like upholding the flavor that we wanted to, um, to, to release and also to be reflective of our culture and also be proud about it while also going through like what's called the retort process, which basically makes the shelf stable. It's like a high intensity heat process to make a shelf stable. So all of that, it was just like a whole new world. It really felt like I was building a whole new business. It, it's a new product, but I feel like I was building a whole new business. Um, way more complicated than importing and roasting coffee beans. So we spent about, I'd say actively a year developing it um, from the research stage to the development formulation stage to um, the actual like production stage. But really, we this was always kind of like in our pipeline. I remember back in like 2019 when I was raising a small friends and family round and I, I made like a little deck. And Eric's, who is our designer and also my current, currently my fiance, he had made these mock ups. He made a 3D mock up of a canned coffee 
Um, so for me to use in the deck to kind of like illustrate my vision for the company back in 2019. Wow. Um, so it's always like been in there, but actively building it, I'd say was we spent all of 2022 actively building it. And in a lot of ways, it felt like a race for, for, for us to get it complete before end of the year, because category reviews for the RT coffee category in retail supermarkets happens in November, December. And when you start entering retail, category reviews for each category happens like once a year, right? So for us, RT mm -hmm. Coffee, it was November, December. And I was like, if we miss this window, we have to wait till November, December 2023 for the chance of entering shelves in 2024. So I was like, we were racing to get these three flavors done. Um, we barely made it in time, um, but we did. And then fortunately, we were able to make the category reviews. And then we were actually able to launch and Whole Foods in January, just a month ago. Wow, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. you. You know, there's two things I want to ask before I forget is... Uh... Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You work with your fiance. This is a, a new piece of information for me. I want to oh. know. Yeah, I didn't realize he was, you know, part of this such a strong vision for the uh, for the what we see the, for the visuals of the of the market side. And then the other thing I want to ask is like when you have a a can like this and you need it to get it out to the market and there's all these big like trade shows. There's a big one in Anaheim, I forget the name of it. Expo West, we'll be Expo there. Expo West, yeah. yeah I've been yeah. there like three, four times and it's just mind boggling the amount of, I think CPGs that, uh, mm -hmm. that you know, all these people show up. Um, yeah. So I wanna talk about Eric's involvement and how tricky is that working with the, uh, you know, your fiance. And then the other part is, you know, getting the cans out to the market. Yeah. Okay. So the first piece, Eric's. Um, so Eric's is now he's full time with the company. He's been full time with the company for about two years now, but it, it was kind of a gradual progression. So Eric's and I, we, we were dating since like 20, early 2017. We met in 2016 and I launched the company in late 2018. So he's really seen my entire journey 
um, in ideating this company, um, the very early stages, and then building it up throughout 2017, 2018, and then launching 2018. And he was just always such a huge support for me. Like he would really do whatever role, whatever job needed to get done, he was there from the beginning. So in the early days, he was helping me pack the beans. Like I would roast, nice. he'd help me pack and seal. He would help me carry all the bins up and down our apartment steps. We live in a brownstone in Brooklyn. He'd help me do all of like my USPS mailings. We would pack the orders at home. He'd bring me to the post office. Like if there was a job that needed to get done, he would step in to fill. And then he evolved with like, then eventually, and that was all like free labor, right? Yeah. I wasn't paying him. And then eventually um, he started working part-time. I was able to pay him like an hourly rate where he would work in the roastery with us and like help pack and all the stuff. And then I remember like in um, 2020, early 2020, we moved facilities and we started roasting on a lowering machine. The previously it was a probat. A probat is a automatic, sorry, a probat is a manual machine. So it was only me roasting manually or my, um, like my assistant, Brendan, who also, I also taught how to roast manually, but it could only be one of us to roast manually. But then once we transitioned, transitioned to his new facility, we started roasting on an automatic machine. So what that means is I roast it, I develop the profile, I see the profile, and then anyone can basically operate the machine and start roasting automatically. And so for me to kind of wean off of roasting physically, Eric's eventually became like our roast, our lowering operator. And so he started roasting there. And then eventually we started growing where like the production team started growing. So we'd hire people and he started like doing like half his time in production and half his time in design because his background is actually 3D art. He went to school for 3D art and the, the full Adobe suite, like not just graphic design or 2D, but like 3D art. And then um, soon he was doing half and half, splitting his time. And then eventually we transitioned him out of the roastery and he became our full-time designer, right? So that's how it's been. And um, I'd say... It, I feel really lucky that given our personalities and who we are, we are able to work together. It's not always easy and it's gotten easier as we've worked through like our communication styles, our challenges, um, how to like give and receive constructive feedback both yeah. ways. Um, but ultimately I genuinely, I ultimately feel like it works because Eric's is very supportive. Um, he doesn't have an ego about the thing about anything. He is genuinely there to help uplift me as his partner and then naturally uplifting the business, which he's now a part of. So it has like this win-win nature to it. So yeah, we, yeah, <laughs> we met, uh, last, I think November, I think when I was in yeah, New York, at, in New York at D and D. Yeah. Yeah. And I can't believe how nice he is. <laughs> I was so blown away. Was He's so, so nice, right? Such a nice person, yeah. Very I mean, because he looks pretty hard, you know. It looks like a you know a tough guy, you know. Yeah, and, all the tattoos. Yeah. <laughs> and he just seems such a wow, such a beautiful, like gregarious smile. You know, he's like such yes. a nice person. Yeah. <laughs> Thank but you for I seeing that. Yeah. Didn't see that coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and then how? Well, once you got the cans going, how like how do you get him out? How do you get him out to distribution? Yeah. So, I mean, immediately, so we launched like the very first SKU, Classic Black, which is like just the all black one um, in August of 2022. And the other two, Condensed Milk and Coconut, we were still developing, right? So we basically led, this is kind of like our foray into the RTC market space. We had some time, a couple of months from August, end of the year, to like make some news, do a press release, like win cost supplies, entering the RTD game now. 
started like sending samples to retailers. But at this time, we were already we already had a relationship with Whole Foods, particularly Whole Foods Northeast in New York, because our packaged coffee beans were already in Whole Foods. Mm. And we we haven't talked in so long, like we actually missed that whole major milestone about when yep. we first entered Whole Foods with our packaged coffee beans and how, you know, we're like one of the first to bring 100% Robusta from Vietnam to Whole Foods shelves. Like that was a major milestone. So we had had that relationship going on in the packaged coffee category and they work separately and kind of like slid this in. Um, and so from there, I think because we had a relationship and we were already in Whole Foods, it, it made it a little bit easier to kind of like bring up this product. Um, and it was also the right timing. And so, you know, by like by before the end of the year, before the end of 2022, they were like, oh, you have you have two more products coming out, condensed milk and coconut. Let's launch all three SKUs in Whole Foods, New York, where you're already in. So we did that in January. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Now, working with big box companies like Home Depot, Costco, and fulfilling it and coming up with their terms and agreeing to their terms of payment. Sometimes you're stretched 90 days, 120 days. Can you tell me a little bit about like how difficult, I mean, it looks glamorous and it's amazing that you can land these accounts, but there's a back end story to how difficult all that is, right? Yeah. It's not a walk in the park that we on yeah. the outside would think, right? Yeah. Great question, Kenneth. Um, it is super difficult. This brings up, you know, the topic of like cash conversion cycle, right? And it's extremely difficult with small businesses that just don't have a lot of cash in the bank, right? And we also haven't built the reputation to maybe have a massive line of credit to float ourselves through this entire process. So, for example, when it comes to producing inventory, everybody who's helping us produce inventory wants to get paid right away. Yeah. Right. But then when it comes to selling our inventory into the retailers or distributors, they want to pay us 30, 60, 90 days later. Yeah. So we're talking, let's say we pay for the cogs, right? Or the goods inventory on January 1st. Let's say it gets produced February 1st, right? And then it takes some time to travel into our warehouse, their warehouses. Let's say it lands in our distributors' warehouses, like, February 15th, if we're lucky, March 1st, then they pay us 36 days later. That's April, May. Yeah. So the cash that went out in January, we essentially get paid back in May. So let's call it like five. And that's if everything goes smoothly, right? End to end. So there's five months where we're like that five month float. How do you float that cash, right? It's really difficult and it's really tight. And so as we are growing, we have to explore thing other like different financing options, like you know, runway extenders, you know, PO invoicing, um, term loans, investment, right? Um, but it is really difficult. You're right. It, on the end, on the end, it's like we have a can. It's like amazing, sexy on the shelf. But on the yeah. back end, it's extremely difficult. And then you layer in these things like shelf life, right? The product has a shelf life, um, but then like when it hits the distributor, they want it at 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 like minimum seventy five percent shelf life. So then they can sell it to the retailer, to the Whole Foods. So basically, we can't overproduce inventory because if we overproduce and it hits the distributor at five, like 50% shelf life, they won't accept it. You know what I'm saying? So you have to produce this. It's like this tight timeline to even be able to produce. And then you have to basically move it within three months. And if you don't, then it's like, well, it's past 75% shelf life, even though it's good for another like like nine months, right? Little things like that. Yeah, you got a, a lot of lining things up. Um, yeah. It's, it's tricky. And, 
And I can't imagine, like, I think in fashion, it's called factors, where you go to a factor and the factor actually fronts you the money or these financing houses, companies that give you the money ahead of time. But that eats into the margins as well. And I know these margins are very razor thin, you know, when you're mm -hmm. dealing with these sort of packaged products, razor thin margins, and that eats into the profits of a company. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you deal with? Yeah. A thousand percent we deal with that. And I often feel like as an emerging company, I feel like we're always at the mercy of margins. And I feel like we're always at the mercy of giving up margin because when somebody has to give up margin, it's like the brand producing or, um, the, or the distributor who's distributing a product or the retailer or the consumer. Like everybody is trying, like everyone has, a margin or amount they're willing to spend, right? Distributors and, and retailers, like they don't budge on their margin. Like their margin is their margin. If you want to work with them, you, you have and you have to work with them because they are your route to market. Consumers can essentially you can kind of like play with consumers, but you also don't have that much freedom or room as a brand because consumers have options, right? If they don't want to pay four nine nine for this RT coffee, they'll just pay three nine nine for another coffee or two nine nine for another brand, right? So I feel like as a brand, as an emerging brand, I feel like we're always at the mercy of margin and we're always the one giving up, right? Our margin yeah. to enter the market and to enter the market on shelf at a competitive MSRP, right? So what do you do? Um, for me, I think a lot of it is short-term, long-term strategy, short-term, mid-term, long-term strategy. Um, for me, then the short-term, it's, we are at the mercy of these margins. We are at the mercy of these MLQs. Um, we want to get to shelf to prove it out, to have data, um, to increase our POs, and then we can gain a little bit of economies of scale. Then we can make back some margin, right? Expand our margin, decrease our cogs. That that's why this question or your answer is so important, is because you as a buyer, we as a buyer, sometimes we look at a can at, that's four ninety nine, and we think to ourselves, "Wow, that's." That's a lot, but the back end of this whole cash conversion cycle, there's so many moving pieces that we as consumers don't realize that's happening. And I want to bring that to the attention of the people listening, the people consuming wind coffee supply in a can, because in order to get to the, uh, the economy of scale that you're talking about, to lower these margins, it's important that we support Vietnamese owned businesses from the get go so we can mm -hmm. understand that you know what, we might not get that margin in the beginning, but it's mm -hmm. so necessary in order to go for the long, you know, for the long term mm -hmm. brand building that you are going for. Mm -hmm. Totally. Thank you for bringing this up, you know, for our, our community, our audience, um, you know, getting to shelf is really difficult just to get the placement, the approval, but staying on shelf is way harder, right? Once you're on shelf, if you don't move, if your product does not move, people are not buying it, um, you will lose your spot. Once you lose your spot on shelf, it is extremely difficult to get back on shelf because you basically showed Whole Foods or the retailer like this brand doesn't hit and nobody wants this brand around, right? And then it becomes more difficult for other emerging brands who may have like a, a cultural angle or like an innovative product, it makes it more difficult for them to reach the shelves, yeah. right? So our whole thesis is like, Consumers are diverse. Um, America is multicultural and we should reflect that in the offerings of our products on shelf. 
And that that's just like part of the story, right? That's just part of the journey to get there. Once we are on shelf, it is hypercritical that our product moves and that that we that we have information to support the fact that like people do want this product. Like you should invest in diversity. You should invest in creating more shelf space for diverse products from diverse creators. And so in the that key piece right there, that data, the only thing that will move the needle for retailers is does this product move? Are you helping the store make money? But more importantly, like do people want the product, right? So you're absolutely right. When our product is sitting on a shelf, and if you're anyone who's assessing any product on shelf, if you're seeing like what they call a challenger brand or like an emerging brand, a challenger brand is challenging these older brands that have insane economies of scale, right? Like a Coca-Cola or a Pepsi or, you know, a Nestle, like they have a economies of scale. And of course their product would be $199, $299, right? If you, the only chance for us challenger emerging brands to exist and to grow and to be a part of the future and be part of shaping culture in the future is if consumers support by spending maybe an extra 50 cents a dollar to move the units yeah and this decision to do shelf versus like direct online to customers how do you kind of like figure out that landscape because i imagine Going straight to customers from the online perspective is much better margin-wise, but obviously you don't have the reach because that creates marketing problems or you have to go deeper into the marketing and go wider. So what's the sort of like the breakdown of like making that decision to go stronger on one side or the other? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a combination of one, it's like data of where do consumers shop for this product? Um, what is the appropriate channel for this product? And then two, how much money or resources do you have for marketing, right? So for example, we operate both in D2C e-commerce and retail. Our cans are available online. And I think until we become widely accessible on shelf, people will shop online to try it. But the consumer behavior studies show, data shows, People will shop online for some groceries, but especially when it comes to like heavy liquids in a can, they ultimately want to shop for that in stores, right? So interesting. The behavior is still there. Like people will buy a can online. They want to try, but like, like for example, um, I love coconut water, right? I love this one brand of coconut water, which I won't say because they're not sponsoring this episode, but I love coconut water. I will spend so much on coconut water. I buy it every time. I'm in Whole Foods. I've never once bought it online, right? But that's crazy because it's heavier when you buy it out of the store and you're carrying it versus somebody delivering it to you. That's the most counter kind of argument that, you know, I, I didn't realize that, but why? Why do you think that it's, that's the case? It's behavior, right? <laughs> behavior. I believe that COVID, the pandemic, definitely accelerated a lot of like e-commerce shopping behavior where like we're very comfortable now buying groceries online. But ultimately for like a big, a massive chunk of like the market and the audience, like the behavior is still shopping in stores, right? So, but then when it comes to like, let's say coffee beans, right? Our coffee beans and our brew kits do really, that's like our D2C products, right? And they do well online because one, they're kind of more, more of a giftable product, right? Mm -hmm. um, and there's so many different platforms that have like made coffee subscriptions, uh, technology right so it's like consumer tech meets consumer so the behavior for coffee beans i think exists the, the behavior for coffee beans online subscriptions online exists a little bit more 
um, in that category, but it's still a largely like grocery product and people again still shop for coffee beans when they're making their round and they're buying everything for the pantry everything for their fridge in one run they're going to grab that bag of coffee beans right however if i were to look at both categories rtds or packaged coffee i'd say packaged coffee could do better on e-commerce than a canned coffee could right the other piece of this equation is like so there's the consumer piece the other piece is marketing like you were saying in a store if you're on a shelf in a store, you can reach like potentially thousands of people in a week, right? Um, without spending a dollar, right? Until you start layering in like demos and samplings, right? When you're online, the only way someone will find you is if you pay to have them find you. And in that model of like D2C e-commerce, direct to consumer e-commerce, you basically have to pay for every single customer, right? The CAC, cost for acquisition, customer acquisition costs. And that becomes very expensive. Now, if we had a lot of money, we would just dump all of our money um, to acquiring customers online. But in that method, you have to basically pay to acquire customers one by one. So it's expensive. So that becomes a question of resources. Whereas in retail, you don't necessarily have to pay to acquire every single customer. That makes sense. I, I assume you're very busy with the day-to-day -day of everything that you touch. How do you allocate and prioritize your time on the most important areas, you know, and based on like the years of leading this company now, how do you know where you're putting your attention the most efficiently? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As the business gets busier, um, for example, moving from strictly e-commerce to now doing e-commerce in retail, just Rosa Coffee to now Rosa Coffee in RTDs, being in 15 Whole Food stores to now 50 Whole Food stores. Like as the business gets busier and the challenges get bigger, it requires more from me. It requires more mental bandwidth, more energy, more brain power to solve some of these bigger problems. And so as that's happening in my world, something has to give, right? In order for me to have more bandwidth, more brain power to solve these bigger problems and to move us forward. So immediately I've cut my social pie, right? Like I, I didn't see any friends in 2022 or unless they were like in my business world where we could help each other do things. Um, and I think in 2022, a lot of my friendships, a lot of my friends, they've noticed and like we've had conversations about it like, um, I just can't see you right now, you know, or they'll be like, let's make a plan for like two months later. And I'm like, I can't commit right now. Like, I won't even make plans two months out for certain social things because, um, it's like protecting your energy, but on a whole nother level. Yeah. So then I was like going through this period because 2022 was so difficult and so just like draining for me. So I was going through that shift of like my life pie, social business, personal relationship, et cetera, family. And then I was experiencing the difference between like depleting energy, not depleting energy, and then like re-energizing, right? In 2022, I found myself depleting energy a lot. And then I started doing nothing to not deplete my energy. So like being a vegetable on the couch, not seeing people. I wasn't depleting more energy, but I wasn't necessarily refilling my cup. 
it's it got like so bad where basically towards the end of 2022 and now I've basically I have a new morning routine I have a new routine to fill my cup every day um, pour into myself in the morning and that's really helped me um, in this next stage of growth have more energy and um, in more I guess juice more power to like power through and I could tell you about my morning routine if you want. Yeah, we'd love to hear it. And I'd love to hear how you allocate marketing or distribution or production. You know, all of those departments, how do you, I mean, I don't, I can't imagine you just going willy nilly about this. I think it's for me, when I hear you talk, it's much more structured. I'm interested in that just for my own personal growth. So I'd love to hear your morning routine and then how you break down these different yeah. MBA departments, right? I mean, this yeah. is what they, yeah. So my currently my morning routine that's been really helping me through is um, I run every morning for about 20 minutes on the treadmill, um, run, walk. I do a cold shower afterwards. So about a five to eight minute cold shower um, beginning to end. And then I do about five to seven minutes meditation. And that just completely um, puts me in the right mindset. It keeps me grounded. Um, I've already overcome a challenge each morning. I made the decision, the commitment to be uncomfortable. And I've like fortified my desire and my tenacity to be there. And that that energy helps me really show up better for the rest of my day. Okay. How do I allocate my time? Allocating my time has been, has also been an interesting evolution because as the business grows, like every department underneath it also grows. The needs for grow, like yeah. the mark. How do you market going from marketing e-commerce to marketing for e-commerce and a retail launch? Massive, right? And then you lay in the operations that we talked about earlier. For me, like currently, like we're still like a very small, scrappy team. The way I've had to like I've I've allocated my time is it, it kind of like in an odd way has gotten easier because gotten so much more high pressure where the most critical, urgent, time-sensitive things stick out a lot easier, where it's like, if you do not get this done, it will derail us, you know? So currently um, at this juncture, my marketing pie, for me in terms of like how I spend time, my, my bandwidth into the marketing bucket has shrunk quite a bit um, compared to how much more involved it used to be. Like the bucket is still there. We still have teammates who like run it. Um, but my bandwidth in the marketing pie has definitely shrunk because I've had to allocate more bandwidth in the operations, sales, strategy, biz dev, and finances to basically make sure we can execute on these opportunities. Now, for example, I'll have a task or several tasks to make several reels for Instagram, right? That's part of our content strategy. But then I also have a task to secure all of this inventory inventory in time for our production to launch in time with Whole Foods, right? Which one has to give, right? If I don't make these reels, it, it sucks because like content and search is very important. But if I don't secure this inventory, we will derail the business, you know? So for me, when it comes down to like choosing what to spend my time on, I just focus on like what is the most time sensitive, critical, urgent thing that if I do not get to today, it could really like jeopardize our um, opportunity. And in that sense, it's actually become a lot easier for how I have to let go of certain things and go deeper in certain areas. Yeah, makes sense. It's like putting out the biggest fires first and then yes, going down the correctly. list. Yeah. And, and I love how you said that, and just getting more comfortable and yeah. accepting that 
certain things just won't get done in the way that I want to get it done. Yeah, that makes sense. So there's a proliferation of Vietnamese brands coming out in the market. There's a proliferation of Vietnamese coffee companies coming mm -hmm. out into the U.S. market. Now, I think about you all the time as I see them pop up and I want to support as much as I can all the, the Vietnamese brands. However, mm -hmm. in your shoes, I can imagine, wait a minute, I'm competing with my cousins, quote unquote, right? And you have to engage in this sort of strategy to really, I mean, there's only a certain pie number that you know you want to get market share you want as a business person as we should we we want to dominate but that approach to going after your 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 kin you're going after your country folk right do you approach this strategy differently or the same as if they were another nestle or national coffee brand mm-hmm I just want to stay for the record. I think it is so freaking awesome that there are more and more Vietnamese coffee companies like showing up. That's what we need. That's what the culture needs. That's what America needs, right? And I'm just going to reframe your question. It's, it's not about grabbing shares of the pie. It's about growing the pie. Mm, great answer. Right. And because like, not, not to be rude, but like, why would I want to go after the smallest pie, right? If I were going to go, if I were going to go after anybody's piece of the pie, I'd want to go after the biggest piece of the pie, right? But really at this juncture, when we think about there's the business piece, there's a culture piece, um, there's a category piece. At this juncture in time, Vietnamese coffee, Vietnamese coffee culture in America is so young in America that we need more and more people growing that category and growing that awareness, right? Go back and think about when matcha was first entering American coffee culture. Everyone's like, what's this green powdery drink? Ooh, ah, matcha, right? Now it's an explosive category of its own. Same thing with boba, same thing with chai. It is macro trend of Asian beverages or more broadly Asian culture in America. And there's a lot of education that needs to happen around Vietnamese coffee because we're at the very early juncture. Everyone's like, what's Vietnamese coffee? Um, what's Robusta, right? In us, as a company, unless someone gives us a trillion dollars, we cannot educate every single person in America on our, on our own. So it is to our benefit as a community and as a category to have more and more people preaching Vietnamese coffee, robuster, differentiation, why it's great and why you should give it a try, right? So I think in that sense, it's very powerful. It, it's truly a rising tide lifts all boats, right? It's cliche, but it's true because we want to think about this as early juncture, growing awareness, everyone, you know, everyone putting their bandwidth, their resources, their dollars to educate the American consumer to grow the culture, grow the awareness, but more importantly, grow the category of Vietnamese coffee, grow the segment of Robusta coffee and grow the category of coffee in general in America. And I can't do that alone. So I think that's great. And I think what's really beautiful about this wave of the rise of Vietnamese coffee in America is that it is predominantly led by Vietnamese people and more so by Vietnamese women, which I think is really, really freaking cool. Can we think about how matcha blew up in America, like in mainstream America, it wasn't led by Japanese folks. If you look at some of the bigger matcha brands, like they were actually led by like white folks, right? And so I think it's really special and really beautiful, really powerful that at this juncture and this movement, it's, it's led by Vietnamese folks. And I love that. Now to answer your question of like, how do I approach 
you know, the strategy of, of, of a Nestle or like a strategy of someone within the Vimeo's coffee space. I generally approach it the same, right? So I'll first target like just the coffee category general, whether you're a Nestle, a Blue Vault, a Stumptown that doesn't have a Vietnamese coffee product yet, or you're a Vietnamese coffee brand that has a Vietnamese coffee product. The way I approach a strategy is the same. For us, we're always thinking about how to differentiate, right? When I first entered the scene, before there was you know, this emergence of more of these coffee brands, when I was looking at like these other like third wave roasters, like Stumptown, like Blue Bottle, I was like, how do we differentiate? Oh, none of them have Robusta. None of them have single origin in Vietnamese coffee. None of them are talking about it or roasting about it. I was like, that's how we differentiate, right? Um, and we still do that with, we were developing our cans. Like, how do we differentiate? We studied every RT coffee in the US market in Whole Foods. And we looked at what was on the label. What was like, the, what were the flavor brand, bands? What were the milk options? I was like, how do we differentiate? And then it's like, how do you differentiate? Then that leads to the question, like, how do you innovate? Because when you can, one, differentiate, but then more so when you can innovate, that's when you expand the category, right? We're not just putting another oat milk latte in the shelf, like no just to oat milk, but that's just replicating what's existing. It's not expanding the set, right? So that's how I think about it. And that goes across the board. Now, if we want to go in the segment of like, okay, how do I think about Vietnamese coffee brands? Well, for one, I, I generally don't think about how do we compete with Vietnamese coffee brands. I, I generally think about how do we compete in the coffee space, period. Right. And that approach of like, how do you differentiate? How do you innovate? How do you stay um, a leader in the space? How do you, how do you stay pushing the boundaries? If we can do that with the Stumptown, I think we're doing that with all coffee brands in the set, you know? Like, so another example is like, okay, a key example is how we differentiate and innovated our RTDs, 100% cold brew, sorry, 100% robust to cold brew, right? Um, I think in like the non-Vietnamese coffee RT space, it was primarily Arabica, 100% Arabica on the packaging. In the Vietnamese RT coffee space that I was seeing a few, I was seeing a blend of Arabica and Robusta, right? And I was like, okay, let's let's push even further, right? So we went with the 100% Robusta. Um, so that was how we wanted to differentiate and innovate, right? We looked at the flavor bands um, in the RT coffee space and like the milk options, very common to see a latte. So we went with a condensed milk option, which was also traditional to Cafe Sera. In the non-milk option space, we were seeing a lot of oat milks, a lot of nut milks. So we were like, let's go with the coconut milk, which is also a traditional like cafe zero, right? So ways to differentiate. And then more recently, we recently released our first ever anaerobic robusta, which is not just a differentiation, it's an innovation in the coffee space, right? Which is where um, it's a robusta that has been fermented for eight days and sun-dried for 25 days and it acquires this like amazing like unique layers of fruitiness and sweetness right that people generally don't ever think about associating with robusta but like that fermentation the anaerobic processing method is like an innovation right and so we always think about differentiation and innovation to not just stand out but to expand the set but mostly to push the industry forward yeah, it it sounds like you're competing against your own self every day instead <laughs> yeah. of, right? Yeah, instead totally. Of yeah. Worrying about whatever anybody else is doing, you're thinking yes. about how do we get better and yes. do it better on our terms. Yes, perfectly said. That is truly what it is, and I feel like I think that's a kind of like me personally too. Like I grew up playing sports, so I'm like very competitive and athletic. Um, well, not athletic anymore, but I grew up like with the competitive nature and yeah, I like to compete with myself. You know, I like to, I love to 
it's also this piece I don't know if it came up in my last conversation but like I kind of had this chip on my shoulder growing up of feeling like really underestimated you know mm-hmm. and just feeling really boxed into the model minority myth stereotype and so that chip has created this driving me where it's like I always want to compete more with myself to do the unimaginable but more so to prove you wrong or to like blow you away because you cannot box me in you know like I have like that weird driving me um but yeah competing with myself is is going to put a good way to put it yeah I I'm so happy to hear that because as I'm doing more of this work I feel like in the beginning I started with the let's compete with Korea let's compete with k-pop let's compete but as I'm learning the people involved in this space with the community of the Vietnamese that that's not really how we're looking at things which is a great thing which mm-hmm. I'm so relieved because everybody a lot of us are thinking the way you are it's we're competing with our yesterday our own yesterday's uh, identity and we're just trying to get better as a as individuals every day and a lot of people aren't really concerned about what k-pop or you know k-drama is doing we're just it's all about telling our stories better every day and Mm -hmm. so that's a a relief in itself and to explore that is such a an honor and a privilege to me today to see it yeah yeah it's truly like the abundance mindset right um we often talk about scarcity mindset with our parents generation and the abundance mindset with our generation and it's easy to say it but like we truly practice it you know because the world is really large you know and the world is not just america the world is the globe and the consumers that we're trying to reach like there are a lot of people in the world and like there could be more than one vietnamese coffee brand serving vietnamese coffee to people just like there are so many cold brew companies there's so many oat milk lattes right like and everyone in the space they all bring something unique to it. Like they had their own style and flair to it. And I think that's also a, a part of like the beauty of our community to be able to show the nuance and like the diversity within our community alone of like, how does one approach brand building? How does one approach storytelling, right? Like there's definitely room for for so, for all of us. And, and it's not just for us, but I also feel like, like mainstream America, they need to see all the versions of us, right. not just like one version of us. You yeah. Know? Having gone through three recessions myself, I think about this upcoming impending doom in the economy. Is this something that worries you? Because you're not, it's not like you're a barbershop where everybody has to get their hair cut or you're a surgeon where everybody has to, you know, come in for an emergency, you know, a surgery. You are a product that, you know, people have to make a decision during these tough times to either buy or not buy. Is that something that you have to worry about? I feel like coffee plays in a bit of a recession-proof space. Mm. Um, We shall see. Um, Part of it is because coffee is not so much as a treat. It's a daily ritual. So I feel really lucky that we're working and building in a category that people feel um, is integral to the daily lives, Yeah. right? Now, sure, people can still choose a different price coffee product. So like, I think that's, we can be faced with that battle. But I think in general, people will still be drinking coffee during, during tough times. Um, and actually there's also been like this 
this is like I think I came across some research where it's like during a recession when people are generally giving up some of their bigger treats whether it's a vacation or like jewelry or whatever they do they will turn to little treats like small indulgences and I think like a four ninety nine can of coffee could be seen as a small treat or small indulgence right, right? so uh, fingers crossed it works out for us um, but not too worried in, in the sense of like our category and us being able to be a small treat. Now, you and I uh, have met out in LA for two big events that I'd mentioned earlier, which is unforgettable. And these Asian American galas are happening, it seems more frequently and bigger, they're more robust, but we don't see the Vietnamese events at that level yet we had just recently had a debt event with about 300 people to show up in the la vietnamese entertainment space but a sit-down gala uh, is something that i think has not really permeated through um sort of the bigger picture yet mm -hmm. do you know of any that's happening and do you envision more of those for our vietnamese community would you lead or would you participate in any of those events I'm waiting for you to organize it. Kenneth, why are you asking me? You just threw this massive party, which by the way, looked amazing. I was like getting crazy FOMO on um, from social media. The gathering looked so phenomenal. Congratulations on bringing our community together. I talked to a lot of folks who were there. Um, it looked so fun and I'm waiting for you to organize the gala. So I'm throwing that back at you. When's, when's the gala coming? Well, thank you for asking. Um, Next year, we will make sure that we schedule earlier for to to invite, you know, uh, more yeah. of national guests, you know, because this yes. was a little bit more specific to L.A. entertainment, Vietnamese mm -hmm. entertainment. Um, I have dreamt about a gala forever. That's why I'm asking for to get your input. I'm like, I'm fishing for like, you know, hey, you know, would you? <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah, yeah. Let's do it, yeah. So I know that there is Erin um, Steinhauer in uh, Washington, D.C. She organizes and heads Vietnam Society. And mm -hmm. she has started in 2022, shout out to Aaron. She started out the Vietnam, Vietnam Society Gala in DC. So that gala kicks off a whole week of like events at the Smithsonian, mm -hmm. art events, dance events, all these wonderful artists and singers that come into DC for a week. It's amazing. So mm -hmm. I'm getting Aaron on pretty soon to talk about all this stuff. But this is something that's happening on the uh, East Coast. Um, on the West Coast, we are talking uh a few of us are talking about bringing a, a big gala to this uh you know sit down maybe 500 to a thousand people um oh, wow. all over the vietnamese diaspora in vietnam bringing everybody together to celebrate the vietnamese culture so that's definitely in talks uh, so i was wondering i was just trying to figure out if <laughs> if you knew of anything I, happening yeah in, i don't i'm world. actually i i'm both of those um ideas are new to me i wasn't sh i wasn't familiar with aaron's work so yeah i don't know of anything um specifically for the Vietnamese community. So super excited to hear that it's coming together. Yeah, there was one 2004, 2009 called Vang. Vang means like to amplify. And uh -huh. it stood for the Vietnamese American, I think National Gala. Okay, cool. And so they had like a big banquet, the Beverly Hills Hilton, all the like NFL, like Dat Win, Lena Win oh, from, cool. you know, they would, they came in and, you know, all these big celebrities at the time, were honored and it was amazing it was just amazing amazing did it discontinue is it no longer around it it you know the one of the lead per people that were behind it is ryan hubris he um moved to vietnam about 12 15 years ago and so it kind of 
went on pause for a minute, but I think they're talking about bringing it back in 2025 and making it much bigger. Very cool. Very exciting. Yeah. So I want to um, get into this uh, final part of it is that, you know, when I think of founders, you know, every founder goes into their business with an exit strategy, you know, whether you like it or not, whether you're passionate about your work or not, there's always this idea of an exit strategy. You build a company and eventually you get bought out. But maybe it's too early to ask you about that, but have you thought about what that next chapter of your life would be like? Yes, I have. Um, and it's not too early to think about um, the future and or to plan for your business or for your life. I also wanna, want to expand on your question though, Kenneth, because I, I want to share that maybe some founders want to build like a lifestyle business, right? Where they are building something that they want to work in for like 20, 30 years, um, turn it profitable really well, scale to a point to maintain profitability. If you scale too far, you lose profitability, right? And maybe they want to pass it on to their kids. So I think that's also an option for anybody who wants to kind of build a lifestyle or legacy business. And then the other option is like you build more quickly, um, you know, grow quickly for like the hope or the strategy of an exit or an acquisition. Uh, for us, our, you know, my dream is to build the next biggest coffee company in the world rooted in the second largest source of coffee in the world, which is Vietnam. Doesn't sound so crazy when you think about it, no. you know, why not? Right. Yep. All the biggest coffee companies in the world right now that we know of are all rooted in a Eurocentric North American context, and they all buy coffee from Vietnam and Africa and South America, right? So what would it look like for the future of coffee um, that's rooted in cultural integrity for truly uplifting Vietnamese globally if we had a brand that was deeply invested in the origin as well, right? Um, because for decades, there were a lot of companies who bought coffee from Vietnam at a very, very cheap price. And they had a deep interest in keeping the price of Robusta down and they made tons of money from it. And they've never once thought to elevate Vietnam as a country, as a community or as a culture. Right. And I think it would be really powerful to shift that. So with that dream in mind to becoming a global brand and to have global influence, um, I know that I can't do that alone, right? I, I know that I can't just invest my little bit of profits every year to, to grow that. So what that means is, yeah, well, there will be a partner in the future, you know, um, what will that partnership look like? Will it be MNA? Will it be joint venture? Will it be a total exit? Like I'm going to keep it super open, but clarifying the end goal here. So <laughs> oh, what a beautiful answer because, you know, you can have it all right. If yeah. you keep it open with the M&A acquisition, staying in, you know, you can have any piece of that as well as that vision for Vietnam and the amplification of our people and the beans that we produce. Yes, Love it. Absolutely. And also, if, if I may expand as well, I, I, I know that a lot of people see me as a face of the brand and I am. We are a founder forward brand. However, for me, as I'm operating, Kenneth, I'm I'm very keen on clarifying with myself and with those around me that I am not the company and the company is not me. It's not sustainable. 
it's not accurate and it's not healthy, right? It's not healthy for the founder, for me to have my sense of worth tied to business performance. It's not sustainable for the company to have the company's like future tied up in an individual, right? What if something happens to me, right? What if I change my mind, right? Um, so when I think about the future's company on the pathway of becoming a global brand, a key component is the company needs to have ultimate security and sustainability, right? And the way to get ultimate security, sustainability to last for generations, to become an intergenerational global brand is to be able to get the company to that point, right? Where it is partnered up with a bigger entity, right? Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. So that's when I think about like, M&A exit joint venture or the path to getting into generational longevity, it is way beyond what I can do alone. Right. And so I'm like super aware of that um, because ultimately this company is so much bigger than me. The mission the impact it will have for future generations. is so much bigger than me. And I know I can't do that alone. So um, prepared for whichever route will help this company live for generations. Wow, Sarah, thank you so much for your time today. You know, <laughs> you have definitely gotten to another level, I think, emotionally, mentally, intellectually with the journey of Win Coffee and Supply. And thank you for coming on to share this all today. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for having me again. I'm so happy to be a recurring guest. Yes, and we will keep <laughs> it going like I always try. I always try yeah. to, you know, I want to see the growth. I want to see the evolution of, you know, you as a leader and the company. I just want to let the world know, look, this is what's growing in our own in our own community year after year, year after year. So thank you once again. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trinh. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts.